Good afternoon, Grace Life. Happy Resurrection Sunday. So due to it being Easter Sunday, today I'd like to take this occasion to preach about the importance of the resurrection. And that is the title of my sermon for this afternoon, The Importance of the Resurrection. If you're visiting with the church, it's not our normal practice to do topical sermons, but we like to preach systematically through books of the Bible. We like to exposit the scriptures, try to deal with every single verse that's in a book in the Bible. But today I feel the, the need and see the occasion to preach on the topic of the resurrection. The goal that I have this afternoon is to warn against drifting away from the biblical teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and also to strengthen your faith in the resurrection as being an actual event that happened in history from the testimony of the Scriptures. It is my hope and prayer that you will have a greater view and understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you will understand its implications and what they mean for you, both here and now in this life and also for the future. Share a quote to you guys from a book I was reading in preparation. It's by George Eldon Ladd from his book called I Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus. I thought this quote was fascinating. It says, furthermore, as we shall see, Jesus' resurrection was not a return to physical earthly life. It was the emergence within history of the life of the world to come. Just so you know, George Ladd affirms the physical resurrection of Christ but I thought the point that he was making was fascinating, that it's the emergence of a life of the world to come. Where all this is headed? Where is history headed? Where is it going? You find that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see God's purpose for creation. So I've chosen 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to be somewhat of an outline for my sermon, I will address much in it, but I'm not going to go verse by verse through the entire chapter. But I'm, I'm more or less using it as a springboard, still dealing with the resurrection, still dealing with the topics that are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but I'm not going to stay consolidated or tied to first. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce around what I'm saying. So it won't sound like an expository sermon in that sense, but I'm striving to be faithful to what the Scriptures teach about the resurrection. The first point I want to make, and I've derived these points that I'm going to make from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is this, is that there is a devastating error when we drift away 
from the biblical teaching of the resurrection. The second point I've titled, there's a devastating implication when we drift away from this biblical teaching of the resurrection. The third point that I've given the title, or the third point that I have I've given this title to, it's called the glorious reality of the resurrection. And then my fourth and final point I'll be making this afternoon is the glorious expectation that we have as Christians. So before we begin this morning, I'm going to read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Please give your undivided attention to the Word of the living God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God 
the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is expected who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all and in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall, be, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body, body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The, de- the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray before I begin. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the resurrection of the dead. We thank you that this is our blessed hope that we are looking forward to. God, that you will raise us up. God, you will give us new glorious bodies. Sinless bodies. Lord, edify your people this morning. God, guard my lips. Lord, help me to teach. God, there's so much that can be said in this one chapter. Lord, there's not enough time to say everything that can be said. Lord, guide me to say what needs to be said. Father, glorify Christ to Your people this afternoon. Lord, these are not oh, these are not just ideas, Lord. This is glorious truth, glorious realities about our future. What Christ has purchased for us, what He has accomplished in His work. Lord, help us to see it. God, warn us from drifting from the clear teaching of Scripture. Help us to see the dangers Lord, when we don't stay within those boundaries that You've given to us. God, help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So like I said, I won't be going line by line through the entire chapter. I just I read the whole chapter because I didn't know where to stop reading it. It was, it was, it was all good, so I said, let's just read the whole chapter this afternoon. So, I want to begin with the first point that I've derived from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that is the devastating error. And you see that really in verses 1 through 12. See, when we read the New Testament, and we look at different churches that are mentioned throughout the New Testament, there seems to be one church that always stands above the rest when it comes to error and sin. It's even kind of a, a punchline or a joke amongst Christians, is we'll mention the church of Corinth. Man, the church in Corinth had a lot of problems. Or brother, if you were in the church of Corinth, you probably would have transferred your membership. When we look at the church of Corinth, and we consider all the controversies in that church, all the sin and the error that was going on there, there's a lot. There's a lot. 
Immediately, when we start reading the book, we're introduced to the division that's within that church. There is division, and Paul is correcting this division. And the division is caused because the members in Corinth are not following Christ, but they're following men. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. Paul simply responds, Was Apollos, was Paul crucified for you? No. No. There's divisions in the church that Paul's having to address. The next thing that we're introduced to is we we have a man who has his father's wife. And he seems to be comfortable gathering with the saints. There's no rebuke. There's no call of repentance. He's openly practicing his sin in this church. So Paul's having to address this by saying, put this man out from amongst you. He's having to address sexual immorality within the church in Corinth. Another situation that you might be familiar with is the Lord's Supper. It's where we get our instructions for the Lord's Supper, but Paul really is dealing with an issue within the church. What's the issue? Well, at this love feast, this fellowship meal where they would have the Lord's Supper, you have Christians that are literally eating all of the food and drinking all of the wine so that there is none left for their brothers. And the sisters, when they come into the church, and Paul is having to rebuke them for that. He's having to rebuke them and, and remind them of what they're participating in. But I'm not going to focus on those things this afternoon. I'm going to focus on another error that we find in the church in Corinth. And we find that in the passage I just read. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What do we see? They're denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the dead. Somehow, teaching has come into the church where they're saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Listen to what Paul says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It seems like 1 Corinthians, this letter that we read in our Bibles, is really a response to possibly a letter that Paul received from the church in Corinth with a variety of issues. And here we find another issue within this church. It is the denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul continues throughout this letter to correct their understanding of the resurrection and to warn of the implications of it. It is this error that leads Paul to address this issue. And the way that Paul begins by addressing this doctrinal error is by reminding the church that the doctrine of the resurrection was a part of his gospel proclamation to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4 through says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. We all agree that's important. Christ died for the sins of His people. I think there's anyone in here that wants to contend against that. That Jesus died for sinners. And that He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. This serves as a warning to us before I get into that. The warning is this. The church in Corinth was a church that was planted and established by the greatest theologian who received the gospel directly as a revelation from Jesus Christ, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul the Apostle is the one who delivered doctrine to this church. He is the one who proclaimed the gospel to them and established them. You're thinking, surely some in this church wouldn't take liberty to swerve from the apostolic teaching that they received from Him, and even to eventually deny some of those essential doctrines. It got me thinking about us as a church. Is the cause for our falling into error only because we lack credible teachers or men who are gifted with lots of biblical wisdom, where they're gifted in their teaching. Yes, God has given teachers to the church. And unless a man comes up here and he begins teaching error, is that the only reason that a church would embrace error? I say this because the church in Corinth had the greatest theologian that came and established, planted that church, and taught them sound doctrine. Think about that. It was the Apostle Paul who with his very own eyes he saw the resurrected Christ in his very own ears. He heard the audible voice of the Lord that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The point is I'm trying to make is that the cause for falling into error cannot always be laid at the feet of just ill-equipped teachers. That might sound radical because this church was receiving Sound doctrine. An apostle chosen by Christ to bring the gospel to the Gentile nations. This was their teacher. This is who was teaching them. But what happened? What happened to the church in Corinth? What happened to it? Well, it's possible... Yes, they have bad teachers come in or bad men with the wrong ideas come in begin teaching things that contradict what Paul taught them. But I think there's another element to this. I think it was due to their unbelief in what Paul had delivered to them. Being discontent with the simplicity of that truth. Perhaps they began to crave new knowledge, something fresh, something on the cutting edge, a knowledge that makes them unique amongst their brothers that not everyone can understand. Not something so simple. 
Brothers and sisters, is this not the way that we ourselves can be tempted with doctrinal error? New ideas, fresh ideas about church doctrine come in, and then a curiosity sets in, kind of a flirtation sets in with these other perspectives about things that have been established by the church a long time ago. That's my warning. That's my tangent. I go off on I'm serious, church. I'm serious. There are some in this church right now that are more sympathetic towards certain doctrines that are not just trivial. They're not just secondary issues. They're heresy. It's heresy. If you chalk it up, it is heresy. Are you familiar with the term hyperpreterism? For those of you who aren't familiar with that term, it is the theological position that all of the biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled. You are living in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the resurrection that Christ and Paul just taught about what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. This is it. Right now, if any of you are familiar with this controversy that's going on in Reformed camps, and I bring it up because I feel it to be a necessity to bring it up. Feel that it's important to address it. There's a certain teacher in the church, Gary DeMar. He is one. I will name drop. He is under criticism right now for many brothers that we love, that we trust, that we listen to. Because he will not clearly define or even affirm what he believes about these doctrines. There was once a time where he did clearly affirm what he believed. And now, he doesn't. It's almost as if he's dodging the inevitable that he no longer believes these things. But we won't speculate. Why do I do that? Why do I bring this up? To show how real the warnings of Scripture are. They're real. It's not just isolated to the church in Corinth. It's not just isolated to Paul. It's the same for us today. There are men whom you trust. Men who can be, can be led away from what is true. And begin to embrace falsehood. False teaching. What are you doing to guard yourself against that? What are you doing to be a Berean? To test what's being said? Maybe you say, brother, you're taking too hard of a stance on hyperpreterism or people that embrace that doctrine. 
the last thing the church needs is more division over doctrine. Let me remind you of what Paul says in 2 Timothy, chapter 2. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gain green. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Quick observation about this. Paul is not light in how he deals with this. He says that this type of teaching, this irreverent babble, it leads to ungodliness. He says that their talk, it spreads like gain green. What is gain green? What is it? If you're unfamiliar with gain green, it is a bacteria that gets into the blood that causes tissue to die. And if gangrene, I read, is not treated in 48 hours, there's a high likelihood of death. If gangrene sets in, the only treatment is to remove the infected area. You have to remove the infected area. Do you get the language of Paul? We don't flirt with it. We don't toy with it. We don't keep it around. We don't give the benefit of a doubt. We remove the infected area. We cut it off before it kills the Your allegiance should be to the revelation of God's Word. It should not be to camps. And your heroes of the faith. It should be to Jesus Christ and what the Scripture says. And even if that means this, my favorite teacher comes out and he says something that's false. I am not loyal to him. I rebuke, I correct, I call him to repentance. If he won't repent, I move on from him. I have nothing to do with him anymore. I don't tolerate him. I don't try to minimize the severity of it. I don't try to see, I don't try to understand it. My loyalty is to Scripture. That will not make you popular. The warning for us is, let's not be so arrogant to think that we are beyond falling into the same kinds of errors that this church we just read about falls into. Some of you in here are completely caught off guard. You're not even aware of this. Bear with me. Pray that you will be edified from this message. Some of you men, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Another thing is I have a growing concern about, I'm calling it just podcast culture. And here's what I'm saying by that. I'm not saying do not listen to podcasts. What I consider podcast culture is when my brother has more of a relationship with podcasts and programs, and he does the Word of God. He can't tell me from the Scriptures himself his own findings, his own conclusions, his own convictions. The extent of his theology is just regurgitated from other men that he loves. Hey, there's nothing wrong with teachers. I'm up here teaching. But it's a call to examine yourself. 
Are you in the Scriptures? Do you read your Bible? Are you testing what you're hearing? Or are you just blindly taking in all of this content and not even weighing what you're listening to? Not even checking it against the Scriptures? We're going to need more than that, beloved, to persevere for possibly what's to come. You're going to need the Word of God. You're going to need inspired Scripture. You're going to need the living Word of God. My exhortation is to spend more time in the Word of God. Read it. Meditate upon it. Derive your understanding from it. Prayerfully contemplating what is written. And then yes, go and check yourself against church history. Check yourself against teachers. But don't be the Christian that's just always like, well, so-and-so says. Well, so-and-so says. Well, so-and-so says. What does Christ say? What does the Word of God say? Don't become that Christian. Back to 1 Corinthians. There were some in the Corinthian church who had began to teach that there was no resurrection of the dead. And this was a contradiction to the gospel that Paul had preached to them, that he had delivered to them. The gospel that Paul said they received. Paul preached to them that Jesus died for their sins, as it says, that He was buried, that He raised again from the grave three days later, and that He appeared to the disciples and to other 500 witnesses, and until later, the Apostle Paul himself. Another thing to notice is that Paul places the issue of the resurrection in the category of first importance. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, is not a secondary issue in the church. We don't have liberty to just be flexible with different ideas or to entertain different perspectives about it. It's of first importance. Paul meant something by it. He taught it. It's not ambiguous. There's not a million different interpretations of it. God is not the author of confusion. Paul writes that these things happened according to the Scriptures. Referring to prophecy that God had made about raising His servant from the dead. I can't get into all of the biblical prophecy, but one that's obvious is Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. When you read the Old Testament Scriptures, the doctrine of the resurrection is not as clearly defined for us. You don't see it as clear as you do in the New Testament Scriptures. But what is clear in the Old Testament is that the writers believed and understood that they would live forever with the God of the living. That the Son of David would live forever because His reign would have no end. That David's offspring would sit upon an eternal throne. 1, Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 11-14. through 14. Paul not only reminds them that the resurrection was foretold by the prophets, 
But it's also, again, this very same Gospel that He preached to this church. And He warns them about the devastating implications of it. When we swerve from the teaching, what are the devastating implications? The first devastating implication of this false doctrine, when you deny the resurrection or the clear teaching of the resurrection, you can no longer rely upon the sufficiency of Scripture. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an apostolic witness that you get from the Scriptures. Paul writes in verse 15 that we, the apostles, have been misrepresenting God if He did not raise Christ from the dead. We have been lying about who God is if the resurrection never happened. If Christ did not raise from the dead. You'll find other examples in the book of Acts. Several. That the gospel that was being preached by the apostles in the early church included the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were being persecuted for their proclamation of Jesus, which included the resurrection of the dead. Acts 17 Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And if you need a more emphatic statement, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my Gospel. The Apostle Paul. few statements. Maybe you think it's okay that you believe in some sort of a spiritual resurrection only. Not a literal physical resurrection. Well, our Lord dealt with such skepticism when He rose from the dead and He appeared to His disciples. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 24, verses 36-40, through 40, it says this, As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Doubt. What does He say to them? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. Touch my flesh. Touch my physical body. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Christ convincing them, showing them of his physical resurrection. Maybe you're thinking that it's okay if I affirm the physical resurrection of Christ, but that doesn't mean I need to affirm a physical resurrection of the believer. That's not true. According to Paul's logic in 1 Corinthians 15, the way he argues, he says this, 
If the dead are not raised, take that to be the general resurrection of all, then Christ, this individual resurrection, is not raised. So if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. They're both connected intimately. You cannot have one without the other. If you do not believe in the physical resurrection of the dead, then you don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the gospel that you are believing in is not the true gospel, and it is not sufficient to save you. I need to say that. That is not a sufficient gospel. Romans 10 verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not only do you have an insufficient gospel, but you now contradict Christ Himself in His own understanding of the work that He was sent to do during His earthly ministry. For time's sake, I only have one quote of our Lord from the Gospel of Matthew. If you search the Gospels, you survey them, what you'll find is Christ says similar things many times. Listen to Christ in Matthew 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So Jesus' belief about Himself was that He was going to die, and on the third day He was going to rise again from the dead. One of several examples in the Gospel. Another devastating implication if you deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ you undermine and you destroy the entire foundation of the Christian faith. Think about that. The Christian faith becomes utterly meaningless, empty, and futile, according to Paul. He says, if the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised, then let us eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. This life alone is the only thing we have to look forward to. So let's Live it up. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you like that because it releases you from your accountability to God. Perhaps you're already living that way. With that mindset, let me eat, drink, and be merry. Let me live it up. This one life that I have. Tomorrow, I'm going to die. So what does it matter? What does it matter? Well, what does the Scriptures say? What does Christ say to you? It does matter. Because that's a false belief. That's a, there is a resurrection of the dead. All will be raised. The godly and the ungodly. The godly will be raised for immortality and glory and eternal life with Jesus Christ. And the ungodly will be raised for eternal destruction in the lake of fire. I would encourage you to go read Revelation chapter 20. Read it. 21. There is a resurrection of all. We all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We all must give an account. No one's escaping Christ's judgment. No one. 
you will have to stand before your Creator and give an account to Him for the life that you have lived. My question to you is this. What will it profit you? It's the words of Christ. What will it profit you to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul in the end? What profit is that? You could gain everything you want in this life, but you can take none of it with you and perish in the end. What profit is that? You could accomplish everything you want to accomplish. Achieve everything that you want, but in the end, because it wasn't done for the Lord Jesus Christ, it will burn up in fire. It will perish. It will perish. The call to you from a merciful Savior, a merciful Savior who dies for the sins of His people, who bears the condemnation of His own people that they deserve, is to come. To come. To be saved. To come to Jesus Christ. To receive the forgiveness of sins. To escape condemnation. Flee to Christ. Find eternal life. That's the plea for you. You're a believer, this is devastating to you because it it releases it doesn't release you, it vanquishes your hope that you have for the future. Because if you're a genuine believer, you hate sin. You hate it. And you yearn for the day when you will put on that glorious, immortal, sinless body where you will no longer sin against your Lord. It deprives you of your great hope of being freed from sin. Is this not what Romans chapter 6 speaks about? Is Romans chapter 6, it's, yes, it's speaking about a, a present reality, somewhat, what do you want to call it, a spiritual resurrection in the life of the believer. Where the old man is crucified with Christ, the new man is raised to newness of life. To walk in obedience and righteousness. He now has a new heart with new desires. He's been set free from the bondage of sin. He can now serve God. There is no resurrection, then this isn't a reality. Your faith is in vain. There isn't a resurrection... The third devastating implication is that you're still in your sins. Is that the atoning work of Christ was not satisfying to God. Because He's still dead. He did not raise from the dead. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. There isn't a resurrection of Jesus Christ and He did not ascend into heaven. You do not have an advocate right now. You do not have a mediator between you and God in your sins. There has not been a sacrifice for sins that, a, that satisfies or appeases God's wrath for you. Sin still remains. You see the implications of this. The brief time that I have to show you, it just trickles down. It undermines the Christian faith. 
it obliterates the gospel that you believe in. Again, if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no atonement for sin. There is no resurrection of Jesus. There is no ascension of Christ. If there is no ascension of Christ, and there is no reign of Christ, if there is no ascension of Christ, there is no mediation of Christ, no advocacy of Jesus Christ on behalf of the believer, again, we, there is no hope. We're still under the wages of sin and its power which is death. You see how this one error, literally like gain green, a false teaching of the resurrection, can unravel the entirety of our Christian faith. Why do you think skeptics go after the resurrection? Why do you think haters of God, that's the one thing they attack? They attack the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They want to discredit it because they know they know it will discredit the entire Christian faith. So Satan and the enemies of Christ work intensely to discredit or disrupt your belief in that resurrection. Jesus. Next point. The glorious reality. It's not all doom and gloom in Paul's letter here. Verses 20-27, through 27, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. What a glorious reality it is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. This is a glorious reality and it is the thunderous testimony of the Scriptures. The Scriptures speak loud and clear that God did indeed raise our Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. For the sake of time, I have several Scriptures listed here. I'll read some. First one, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. 1 Peter 1.21, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And even the Gospel, the ones that we're familiar with, the verses on an Easter Sunday, Matthew 28, 5-7, but the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen. As He said, Come see the place where He lay. And go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. Again, there are more verses, and much more could be said about the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What my goal is in this point is to show you that the, the teaching of the resurrection is not just isolated to a few verses. It is scattered all throughout the New Testament. And I began to think about this when I used to do more street preaching. How much of the resurrection was in my street preaching sermons? 
I preached about sin. I preached about imputation. I preached about coming to Christ. But I look back and I didn't preach much about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I look at the apostolic testimony, they were being persecuted, arrested. The resurrection was very much a part of what they taught about. The risen Christ and the resurrection to come for His people. Move on. A glorious expectation. Since Christ has been raised from the dead, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, we experience the power of that resurrection here and now through what we call the new birth. Where the old man of sin has died and the new man belonging to Christ, he now walks in new life as mentioned earlier. This is our present experience as genuine believers of Christ. It is no little thing. The work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit in our lives is the evidence of Christ's resurrection. Is that present reality here and now that Christ has risen. And it's glorious. And as glorious as it is though, it only serves as a foretaste, a prelude of what is still to come in the future. That is the physical return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. We are taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 35 through 49 that God has prepared for us special resurrected bodies. And these bodies are not like our present bodies. The scriptures call them heavenly bodies, spiritual bodies. The same as Christ's body. You might say, look brother, it says spiritual body. What, what's your quarrel? It says the same body that Christ had. As we just looked at briefly, minutes ago, Christ had a physical body. He wasn't just a spirit. The resurrected Christ is a physical man. This is the blessed hope of the Christian church. This is the motivation for the Apostle Paul, where he says, I strove with beasts in Ephesus. What does he mean by that? They were contending against him, against all that persecution, all that affliction, all that hardship. Paul is looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. He is looking toward to glory, to the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says, by any means necessary, I strive that I might obtain the resurrection of the dead. Paul himself, along with every true genuine believer, is looking forward to and hastening the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're looking forward to that day. Wherever you fall in the eschatological spectrum, if you are not looking forward to the return of Christ, Brother, what is wrong with you? I am as optimistic about the future as some of you are who are, more, who, who are post-millennial. But I still look forward to the return of Christ. That is my great hope. I yearn for it. Because I, I know no matter what happens here, it will not be as good as until He returns. That is my yearning. I long 
for the return of Christ. I yearn for that. I dream about it. Ever dreamed about the return of Christ? Not in a prophetic sense, but just a dream. Don't, don't freak out. Look forward to the return of Christ. What will this glorious event look like, church? What will it look like? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Brother Ivan read it. Christ will return. The shout of a command. The last trumpet. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, the dead. They will precede the living. They will be caught up in the sky with, with Christ, with new physical resurrected bodies. And then we will be caught up together with them. And our bodies will be transformed, the Scriptures say. Pretty clear and straightforward. As we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul explains that is a different body. A heavenly, glorious, resurrected body prepared for us by our Lord who loves us. I want to try to make some application of all of this. You might be saying, brother, I can look back to the cross of Jesus Christ and I affirm His resurrection. I affirm His death and His resurrection. I can see it with clarity. Your concern doesn't need to be with me. I'm not entertaining or flirting with these false ideas. I'm not covering for these guys. But I'm calling it out just like you, and if I saw it, I'd call it out in the church. I just want to encourage you. You might be saying, what does this mean now for us? Where are we at right now in God's redemptive plan? Well, we don't need to speculate. I can't go beyond Scripture. We find ourselves clearly between the ascension of Christ and the final coming of Christ. The resurrection of the dead. That's where we find ourselves. Pretty clear. But the process that we find ourselves in, what's taking place now, is what the Scriptures say, that, that Christ is reconciling all of creation unto Himself. What that looks like, have ideas, not comfortable teaching on them right now. But that's what the Scriptures say. We're in this process of reconciliation where Christ is reconciling everything unto Him. Everything, it says. Not just us, but everything. All of creation unto Himself. And we are ambassadors. We are ministers, the Scriptures say, of reconciliation. And we go out and that is a part of our Gospel proclamation, be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to the King who reigns. We are told that Christ is reigning now in heaven. He died. He rose three days later. He ascended up into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seating or seated on that eternal throne. The throne of David has prophesied about. He is ruling and reigning and subduing all of His enemies under His feet. That's what the Scriptures say, beloved. That is what they say. Say that that is a present reality. That is what's taking place right now. If your response to that Here's a challenge. If your response, and it's a temptation for me, is, well, look at, look at the news. Kind of respond with, what does the Word of God say to you? 
What does it say? It says that Christ is ruling and reigning and subduing His enemies under His feet, and the last enemy to be subdued is what? Death. Death. And then comes the end. Think about it. And then comes the end. It, the order is simple. Christ rules. He reigns. Subduing enemies. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Then comes the end. Well, what, how is death defeated? The return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Well, I'm led to believe that what's taking place right now is what the Scriptures say. A subduing of God's enemies. All of His enemies. And the one enemy that Christ will handle personally is death at His return. That is what the Scriptures proclaim. So, this is our great hope, church. We look forward to this. We should strive like the Apostle Paul, knowing that our efforts here in this life are not in vain, as we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies at the resurrection of the dead, we work for this end. We look forward to the heavenly kingdom, whose builder is God. We look forward to the new Jerusalem. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness alone will dwell and Christ will be with us physically, where we will behold Him with our eyes. We look forward to the day where we will be reunited with our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep. Some of you have experienced that heartache. A dear brother, a dear sister has passed away. They have gone on to be with the Lord. Well, you have that promise that He will see them again. I, I thought of something to get, to get back. I want to make this point. For my, my brother who who is not as dogmatic as I am about the heresy of hyperpreterism. I want you to think of that shooting in Nashville. I want you to think of those Christian children that were gunned down. For all intents and purposes, all we have to believe is that they were genuine believers. Hear me on this. Let me appeal to your, your heart. The father of one of those daughters, his only comfort in that moment was that he would see his daughter again at the resurrection of the dead. And the hyper-preterist wants to come along and tell my brother, this is the resurrection. Your dead daughter, this is the resurrection. Heresy. It's heresy. And you should hate it, Christian. How do you, com how do you comfort that brother? You, you won't see them. For this is the resurrection. Wow. What hopelessness you just gave to them. That's what you believe. May God have mercy on those who teach such things. The Christian, we look forward to better things. We look forward to better things. We look forward to when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. For we will be singing with all the saints, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? That is what we are looking forward to. That is what we are yearning for. Amen.
Let me close today's sermon by praying. And then we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper. But we think about these things even more. Father, much could be said about this doctrine. And I know, Lord, that I don't even know if I could argue that I scratched the surface of it. Maybe this was more of a pill, an appeal, an exhortation, God. A loving appeal. I'll do with it as you may, Lord. May it be beneficial to your church. God, bless your church. Bless your word. God, strengthen our conviction in this doctrine of the resurrection. Lord, may we not just merely affirm it, but God, may it be a part of our gospel proclamation when we witness to others about Christ, our great hope of the resurrected Savior, and therefore our own resurrection that's to come. God, please. In Jesus' name, Amen.